Reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they, are, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him do you know. I mean, you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am you, where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man I intend to go that we will not find him? Does he not go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, one of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, is, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus has, was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, It's the Christ to come from Galilee. The word of the Lord. Well, Good morning. Good morning. How are you? How are you doing? I don't know about you, but this morning listening to scriptures about being thirsty, I feel a little thirsty these days. Anybody resonate with that a little bit? A few nods, yes. Um, but I want to talk this morning um, about this passage in John 7, John 7 through 8, and we read a little bit right in the middle uh, of uh, the, the great narrative that John the Evangelist sets out of Jesus' ministry. And I, I want to talk about one particular aspect of um, really the great narrative of Scripture, of God's purposes in the world, that I think it's easy to kind of overlook to miss the importance of, and that is this, that the creator God, the Logos, the one who is the cause of all we see in the created world, the reason why anything exists, not only does he spark all of this into existence by his word, and then continues to operate within what he has created, but in the narrative, from the very first account we have in Genesis, God does something really quite extraordinary. Is that he divests himself 
of his creative power and authority and delegates it to you and me. Right from the beginning, God says, let us make man in our image, mankind, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the life that I've created on earth. If you don't think that's remarkable, I do. It's a little bit as if Elon Musk, you know Elon Musk? I'm not equating Elon Musk with God, but you've got to admit he's pretty creative. He's a sort of creative force. It's a little bit of if in the story of Elon Musk, he stood back and said, well, I've done my work now, and I'm giving you the keys to Tesla. I'm giving you the keys to SpaceX, this whole enterprise. I'm going open source. From now on, it's going to be over to you guys. You're going to be stewarding all this, taking it to its next phase. I'm delegating it to you, and you're going to carry on the work in my image, my way of doing it. Not just a few of you, not just the special ones, all of you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be with you and in you and through you as you do it, but I'm delegating this to you now. And that's what we're going to see an echo of here, not of Elon Musk, but of the, creator, the whole creation narrative in this extraordinary moment where Jesus stands up in the Feast of Tabernacles, the great Jewish festival. The Feast of Tabernacles was the big festival. It was the Super Bowl of festivals. Happy Super Bowl Day, by the way. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice on the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus puts himself at the center. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart, out of your and my heart, will flow rivers of living water. God the creator, the one who in the beginning by his spirit hovers over the waters, now says, I'm pouring that spirit into you. Shall we pray? And then we're going to have a look at this scripture. So Father God, this morning, as always, we pray that it would be your voice that speaks loudest. Thank you, Lord, that you are present here with us through your word, through your spirit. And Lord, that you know each one of us where we are thirsty, where we need to be met. So I pray as we uh, uh, look at this scripture that you would meet us where we need to be met, that you would feed us, and that we will go away feeling a little less thirsty. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're at, uh, we've got as far in our series on John, uh, we got as far as chapters 7 and 8 in John's gospel. And if you read through chapter 7 and 8, it's basically one long argument just goes on and on in the middle, <clears throat> excuse me, in the middle there's a little bit, you know, the, 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 the woman who's called an adultery, who, you know, Jesus says, don't stone her, you remember that? Well, probably that's a later insertion, so if you take that out, all the way through John 7 and John 8, they're basically arguing. Imagine that, they're arguing about Jesus and who he is, imagine people arguing and causing division, imagine people arguing and divided, I don't know what that would look like, do you? We are biologically classified as homo sapiens, which means wise man. Really? <laughs> More recently, people said, perhaps we should be called homo religiosus, which means religious man, because wherever mankind is, there is religion. 
I'm like, no, 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 we need to be called homo argumentative. Because wherever mankind is, there are arguments. You just need to come around to supper or dinner with me. And, you know, I I'm, I'm do a lot of the cooking, not all, but I do a fair amount of the cooking, and I love cooking, and I want to prepare a good feast. And for me, it's a love language, and I lay the food out, and I'm excited, and everybody descends on the table, and what do they do? They argue! Almost without fail, our meal times argue uh, and begin with a lot of bickering. So anyway, there's a lot of bickering going on through John and, uh, 7 and 8 uh, uh, about Jesus. And they're sort of saying things like, well, you know, he seems to teach with a lot of authority. Where does he get this authority? And Jesus says things like, well, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Okay? And they're arguing about, you know, where he comes from, because they're beginning to get hints of maybe this is the Messiah, but there are uh, um, predictions or whatever in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, the Jewish people understood that when the Messiah comes... They wouldn't know where he came from. That was the idea. But they know where Jesus comes from. He comes from Galilee. Yeah, it's like coming from Maryland or something. You know, really terrible. Sorry. Amen. <laughs> so they're arguing about that, and they're arguing about, is Jesus really the Christ? Is he the Messiah? And they say, you know, is he, maybe he's a prophet, or is it the Christ? And there's even a little bit of a conspiracy theory going on. <gasps> a conspiracy theory? Oh, yeah. So they say, well, look, you know, the people of Jerusalem said, you know, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? I thought the authorities were trying to kill him. But here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're thinking, if the authorities are not killing him, perhaps they've changed their mind, and they've decided this is the Christ after all. So there's a lot of arguing going on. And the interesting thing is that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, does not want, or doesn't seem to want, to set them straight. He doesn't answer their questions very directly. There's a degree of sort of opaqueness, which really centers around this thing that Jesus is saying, look, you know, the moment that I reveal fully who I am, the moment that people really understand who I am, guess what's going to happen? I'm heading off to the cross. So my time has not yet come. I can't go fully public. I can't take ads out on Super Bowl. Not yet. Because as soon as I do that, on the other side of that comes the cross. And Jesus is starting to be viewed within the matrix of messianic, messianic expectations, and it's becoming a problem for him. It's like the expectation is running ahead of him. It's going faster than he wants to go. And in this passage we read, in John 7, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And as I said, that's the big feast. In the Jewish cycles of religious festivals, they simply called this the feast. It's the big one. And Jesus' brothers, we hear, in this passage, say to him, and I think it means literally his physical brothers rather than his spiritual brothers, say to him, no, go on, this is the moment, here's the big feast, here's your spectacular opportunity, if you really are the Messiah, go show yourself, go demonstrate it. And so his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret 
if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John records there somewhat sarcastically that for not even his brothers believed in him. So his brothers, Jesus' own brothers, his family, they're saying, go on, if you're really the guy, you go and demonstrate that. And so Jesus says to them, no, I'm not going, you go. And then, somewhat difficultly, he does go. Now, I don't know what you want to make of that. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in secret. And in fact, although Jesus is shying away from the public limelight, he then goes and inserts himself directly into the great narrative and the great feast of Jewish life. And we start to see that throughout his life, Jesus is very deliberately weaving his own story into the story of Israel. He does that, does he not, at the Last Supper? At the Last Supper, it's the Passover. It's a great Jewish festival. And Jesus says, look, and they broke bread. That's what they did at the Passover. If you've ever been to a Jewish theater, they break bread. And Jesus takes that moment and says, this is my body. I'm now putting myself at the heart of your Passover festival. And it's a little bit like if I was to come to one of your July 4th celebrations where you're celebrating the independence of this great nation, and I say to you, actually, I'm your July 4th. Me, Matt Hemsley. Or or I go to your Thanksgiving dinner, and I say, you're giving thanks, and actually, you're giving thanks to me, Matt Hemsley. I mean, how would you feel about that? You might say, well, that's a little bit controversial, Matt. It's just edging on the controversial. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus not only inserts himself into the story of Israel, he then revises people's understanding of that story. Here's what happened. The Feast of Tabernacles went on for a week. Seven days of festivity. We are so poor in the way we celebrate things. If you had a wedding back in the day in Israel, we'd go on for days, days of feasting. And you know the, the story of Jesus at the wedding, uh, the wedding, the Cana, where he turns water into wine? Which no wonder they ran out of wine. They went on drinking for days. See, the future tabernacle goes on for a long time. And it is a reminder to Israel of their story that when they came out of Egypt and went through the deserts, there was a long period where Israel lived in tents, in booths, they call them. Sometimes this festival is called the Festival of Booths. So Israel lived this life in tents where they followed the Spirit of God by a pillar of cloud, by day, and fire by night. Do you remember that story? And it's as if in this um, celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, God is saying, hey guys, remember your story And remember that we're all tabernacling to some extent in this life. There's never a moment where we're not, as it were, where we feel, we might feel we're completely established, but really we're more like living in tents. And during the festival, people would literally go and live in tents. It's like us at a great camp out for seven days. It must have been a whole lot of fun. I think. I don't know. It depends whether you like living in tents, really, doesn't it? Anyway, but... And during the festival, at some point, and again, scholars are not sure why or where, because this 
wasn't in the original instruction. You remember how God sort of gives instructions for feasts? Well, this wasn't in the original. But they started to do this thing where they would go and they would fill a golden flagon with water from the pool of Siloam. And then they would carry this golden bowl of water. And when they arrived at the temple, they would sort of process around the altar and they would take this bowl of water and they would pour it all over the altar. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take those glasses of wine and I'm going to pour it all over the water. Is that okay, Johnny? No, I'm not going to do that. But you can imagine, it's a sort of dramatic enactment. Every day, for seven days, they took this big, huge bowl of water and poured it over the, 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 the altar. And that was because people believed that when the Messiah came, he would provide water for Israel. Just as there'd been manna in the desert, and just as Moses, when he struck the rock, water had poured out. So they expected, and this is from a Jewish uh, a midrash, which means a, a Jewish rabbi looking at the scriptures, the, the rabbi looked at the scriptures, they saw this. As the former redeemer made a well to rise, that's Moses, so will the latter redeemer, that's the Messiah, bring up water as it stated. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. There's going to come a moment, they believed, where God would sort of bring up this water and cleanse the temple. And through the temple, this water would then flow out into the land and renew life itself. There's a passage in Ezekiel, another great Old Testament prophet, that he has this vision of holy waters that would cleanse the temple and flow out from the temple. And wherever the water flowed, life would spring up. And it's very specific. He says the water's going to come out of the east side of the temple. Why does that matter? That's where the sacrifices happened. That's where the blood of the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament system flowed out. And the water that flowed out of that would cleanse the temple, and it would flow down through, interestingly, the valley of Gehenna, which is the place that Jesus said or used to talk about hell. So this living water is going to flow down through Gehenna to the Dead Sea, where no life is. And everywhere this water flows, life will spring up. It's dramatic stuff. You see that again right at the end of the scriptures in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, the river of life. And wherever the river of life goes, life comes up. There are trees and leaves for the healings of the nations. So all of this is in the sort of mind of the Jewish folk. And as they're doing this, on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stands up. Jesus, who's been kind of holding himself back as the train of the expectation of his messiahship is going much faster than he wants. And he stands up in the temple, and you don't know why, except that you get this sense that he's become, his heart is crying out for the people. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone is looking for this kind of water that brings life, and the word used here in the Greek to cry out means more than just to speak loudly enough to be heard. 
It's like a word you would use when you're making a great public declaration. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. You're doing all this religious stuff, and it's great, it's fine. But if anyone is thirsty, if anyone wants this water, then come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The great cry of Jesus' heart is you're doing all this good stuff, but you're missing the main point. You're doing all this religious thing. You're you're doing the temple thing. You're doing the water thing on the altar. You've got these great festivals. But you're not coming to me. Jesus. God. God. And that word believe means far more than mentally ascend. It means relying on, put your whole trust, leaning the weight of your life on him. And it's a shocking claim that this man, a human being from Galilee, standing up at the great feast that is all about their God, it's either megalomania or It's God. And here's the thing. You see, the whole religious life of Israel centered on the temple. And in the Jewish visions, that's where the water gets poured out. And it's from the temple that the water flows out into the land to restore life. From the temple. But hear what Jesus says. And really hear this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wait a minute. I thought it was from the temple. We're going from mainframe to open source. Jesus here, in these few words, is saying, you now, you people, you are the temple. You're the ones through whom or into whom I will pour the water, the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit. And John records, now he said this about the spirit. Those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given. That's going to come at Pentecost because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He'd not yet gone to the cross. But now Jesus seems to be saying the water is going to be poured into you and it's going to flow out from you into the world to bring life. It's pretty radical. It's pretty dramatic. And unsurprisingly, such a radical claim causes division. And I've been around the church long enough now to know that if you talk about the Holy Spirit, there's going to be division. And in part, yes, that's because there have been many abuses in the name of the Spirit in churches, manipulation, things being done in the name of the Spirit that should not be done. But it's also because, I think, there's something so profoundly radical and disturbing and wonderful and glorious, and actually it's there right in the creation narrative. 
about this, this thing that Jesus is doing. As you come to him, he will pour into you his very divine life, the life of God itself. And here's Tim Keller. And Tim Keller is, if you don't know him, is a preacher up in uh, New York. He's a pretty safe, reliable pair of hands. He very much loves the Bible. He loves, loves the Bible. He's an authoritative teacher, and here's what he says. Listen to the importance of this. What is the heart of biblical religion? This is not crazy, wacky stuff. What is Christianity, ultimately? Is it a lot of right doctrines? Is it a lot of wonderful feelings? Is it a social vision for the world? Is it a pattern of ethical behavior and upright living? Of course. Of course it's all those things. But primarily, first of all, the essence of Christianity is direct experience of God. God's lifeblood, God's stuff, God's substance, His Spirit penetrating you. That's what makes biblical religion different. Listen, I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty. I'm meeting a lot of thirsty people right now in the church. We're thirsty because we've been exhausted by these last few years, haven't we? For all sorts of reasons. In a way that a good night's sleep is not going to cure. It just won't. And perhaps in our thirst, we're trying to get back to something or try to do things that we used to do in the ways that we did. We're trying to find out how, you know, we can find this life again that maybe we've experienced. And that's not a bad thing. We do our festivals. We do our feasts. But somehow, I think, and I am wrestling to do this in my own life, somehow, in all of this, we, I, have got to find a way to come back to Jesus to satisfy our thirst. It's the only way. Because we need the living water that only he can give. We need the Holy Spirit somehow to penetrate our lives. God himself pouring himself out into our hearts, our lives, by the Spirit. The Spirit that was there at the creation, that was promised throughout the Old Testament, and was poured out on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. So I want to do just something as we uh, come to a close now. And uh, I just want to pray with you, and maybe you've never done this before, but I'm just going to pray for you on behalf of you one of the oldest prayers in the church. This prayer is three words. We sang it this morning, and it's been prayed throughout the church for centuries. And so we have it in Latin, because the church used to do all its services in Latin. That's a good idea. And it's simply this, veni. Sancte Spiritus. Come, Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite you now, just wherever, where you are. You might want to close your eyes so you're not distracted by people around you. And you might want to just hold your hands open. 
just as a sign, really, that you are open to receive whatever God has for you. I feel a little silly. It's okay. It doesn't matter. We're not trying to make something happen here. We're not seeking experience. We're just asking God, asking Jesus for the Holy Spirit, for His Spirit. In Luke, he records this, Jesus' words. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I'm going to pray. We'll wait a little bit more than is comfortable in silence, but just a little bit. Not too bad. It won't be bad. We'll survive. We'll make it through. And then I'll pray again and as the band comes up, and then we'll worship. So Father God, I want to pray now that prayer. For Christ Church Vienna, for you, for myself, for anyone who is feeling and knows that they are thirsty. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Over the centuries, the church has practices of silence and meditation and waiting. We're not doing anything radical or new here. But as you wait on God, as you ask for his spirit, sometimes a thought might pop into your mind. You might experience something. And I just encourage you to attend to that. Nothing more. Jesus, as we are here now, we trust that your spirit is here and at work. We know, Lord, that it was always your intention to share your life with us in the most intimate way possible. So, Holy Spirit, we, we welcome you. We welcome you into that part of our life where we are dry and, and we need your living water. We need that water to be poured into our lives and through our lives into those around us, to the world around us. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you, Lord for what you're doing through Christ Church Vienna. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we are called to be part of your incredible work in this world through the Spirit, by the Spirit, empowered by your Word and Spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Dip your heart in the stream of life Let the pain and the sorrow Be washed away In the waves of His mercy As deep cries out to deep We sing 